Welcome to the world of Aeora, a news and lore podcast about the Pillars of Eternity games, as well as Obsidian Entertainment's upcoming release, Avowed. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the world of Aeora. I'm your host, Eric, aka Gingerino. Thank you guys so much for joining me on another episode as we dive into the history, lore, and game mechanics of Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 as we gear up for the release of Avowed. For those who are new to the show and find themselves curious, why are we comparing Avowed to these old Pillars of Eternity games by Obsidian Entertainment? It's because they share the same fantasy world known as Aeora. And so the hope of this show is that when Avowed is released, we can enter into all three games with an equal knowledge base and an enjoy and appreciate the lore and the writing and the characters and the setting that the games are set in. Today we're going to be continuing a trend that has been going on for a few episodes and looking at the faction groups of the Deadfire Archipelago, which is the setting for the second game, Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire. We've already talked a little bit about what the Deadfire Archipelago is as a setting for the second game. It's essentially a smattering of islands that's basically a new frontier in the world that is Aeora. And a lot of the worldwide superpowers are finally making the big push to this area so that they can gain power or wealth or resources or a new home, etc, etc. We've talked about the Huana people cultures that have been living in the area for thousands of years as native tribes. We've talked about... The Valian Trading Company, which is a mercantile company based out of the Valian Republics, which is solely created to make the Valian Republics rich by any means possible. We have yet to discuss the Pirate Confederacy, who are trying to seek a new home after their old civilization, Grand Valia, began to crumble. But today, we're going to be taking a look at the other main faction in the game, which is the Royal Deadfire Company a large company of people from the Rawatayan Empire who are seeking to find ways to make their current homeland livable and sustainable as they don't really have the resources available, and the Deadfire Capelago is a place they're hoping to do that. No related news about any of the games going on, but, but be assured that as soon as we learn anything about Avowed or Pillars of Eternity, I guess, I will put it right here in the show. For now, let's dive straight into today's lore. I'm curious, what exactly did you find there? Before we get started, I just want to say, hey, thanks to all of you who have been sticking with this show for a long period of time, uh, as today is, well, this is the 50th episode, so I'm halfway to 100. And I mean, I know I have other bonus episodes and stuff out like that, but it's just really cool to reach a milestone like this, and I really appreciate those diehard fans who have been here since the beginning, or honestly, even partway through, but you've just been following me as this goes along, and you've been enjoying the content as it comes out, and you've been engaging in conversation and helping make this show better. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being fans of this show and following me on this journey, and I hope to continue forward as Avowed undergoes development. But I know why you're here. We're here to talk about the lore of the world, so let's do that. All of the information that I'm going to talk about today comes from the Pillars of Eternity 2 guidebook, which I've mentioned before. Uh, for those who are entering into these episodes new, it is a book of lore that corresponds to the second Pillars of Eternity game. And while a lot of this lore you can learn about in-game, some lore that exists within this world is only found within these guidebooks. So if you own Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire on PC, I think specifically like the Definitive or Ultimate Edition, you can find a PDF of this guidebook in your game files. As well, if you want, you could go on Amazon.com and you could look up Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire Guidebook and you can find a hard copy. 
as well. So today we're going to be looking at the section of the book known as the Royal Deadfire Company, which, you know, makes sense if that's what we're going to be talking about today. We have things to discuss like languages, population, the government, the deities that they worship, and a bit of who they are and what makes them the faction that they are. As we know, Obsidian Entertainment, they like to write a lot of, I don't know, compelling realism, I don't know what you would want to call it, into their factions and their characters. There's something lively about their characters and their factions that you know that they've thought of a lot of the minor details about what makes a person a person, what philosophy drives a group of people. And so we're going to get into that today. A very short backstory to what the Royal Deadfire Company is. I alluded to it at the introduction to this episode, but essentially what they are is they're a contingency of people. I shouldn't say contingency. There's a large amount of people. There's about 10,000 people that are um, conscripted from Rawatai's navy in order to make this Royal Deadfire Company. And what they essentially are is they're a, a large envoy of people leaving the Rawataian Empire's homelands in search of a way to dominate the Deadfire Archipelago. The reason being is that the Empire of Rawatai is in a location in the world that is subjected to horrific storms, and it is hardy living. The soil is not good for making crops. The weather up there just wants to kill everybody. And as a result, the people of Rawatai have become hardy and united and cooperative. There's a lot of good things that come out of it, but it's hard living. It's not something that you can easily, easily do. And as the population grows and swells, the issue is eventually going to have come up where how do we sustain our population? How do we sustain our people in a way that doesn't lead to revolution of some sort? And the Deadfire Archipelago is a beacon of hope for the Rawataian Empire to be able to plunder it for everything that it has and use it for your own gain, to use it so that your homeland can be sustained. Because the Deadfire Archipelago has fertile soil that they can be used for making crops and feeding people as well. Another place for people to move to, so that way the population isn't all in one area. There's a lot of reasons why the Deadfire Archipelago would be great for the Rawatine people and how those people could survive through the means of the Deadfire Archipelago. Only problem is, of course, is that A, there are other factions and people here vying for control of the area, and B, there is a native group of people, the Huwana tribes, that already live here, and you would have to completely dominate and overthrow them. So there's a bit of a moral quandary to it, but like, how far do you go for the survival of your people and your nation? That's a bit of the backstory for what the Royal Deadfire Company is even doing in the Deadfire Archipelago in the first place. And so that is their ultimate goal, is to dominate Deadfire Archipelago so they can sustain their homeland in Rautai. Now, Rautai itself being actually a descendant of people from the Deadfire Archipelago in the first place, in the more ancient history of this world... Uh, the population of Rawatai is mostly made up of Amawans, which is one of the unique races in this world that's created. If you've played other fantasy games, if you've watched fantasy movies, or you've read fantasy books, you're familiar with the idea of unique races and cultures existing within the minds of the authors that are making these stories. But that's not to say that there aren't other races like dwarves, elves, humans, and orlans in there as well. The Royal Deadfire Company is a mix of military structure as well as mercantile. It is a mixture of an economy-based group of people that are trying to build up a, an economic empire. They're trying to build their businesses up. But also, it originated as a military unit. It was actually called Rawatai Deadfire Company at one point. 
There were five naval captains within the Rauantian army, the naval army specifically, that formed the Rauantai Deadfire Company. But as the Valian Republic increased its actions within the Deadfire Archipelago, the Ranganui of Rauantai, and Ranganui is basically their version of emperor, renamed the company the Royal Deadfire Company. And he promoted these five naval captains that were in charge of the of the originally Rauatai and Deadfire Company. He promoted them to a title called Hazanui, which is kind of like Ranganui, but it's obviously lower on the food chain, and it's specific to the area that they are in. Essentially, these Hazanui council members, these naval captains, if you will, they are now in charge of doing everything that they need to to make sure that the Royal Deadfire Company is successful where they are. They are essentially, for all intents and purposes, now in charge of the Royal Deadfire Company. The Ranganui back home obviously has veto power over anything, but he's basically given them the power and authority to do as they see fit to be able to complete their mission. And so in that way, it's not entirely different from the structure that the Valian Trading Company has, where they are specifically not adhering to the laws of the Valian Republics back home. They're doing, by any means necessary, what they need to do in order to gain control of the Deadfire itself. But because of this history of military, the structure and the hierarchy of the Royal Deadfire Company is more military than you would see in the Valian Trading Company. Beneath the Hazanui are fleet masters and ship captains. This keeps a chain of command going, uh, dispenses with any unnecessary complication of colonial governors. Instead of having to elect governors and have local bylaws and stuff like that, it's essentially just one military force, and that's how it operates its government. And in that way, there's a little bit more efficiency going on because you have direct orders from higher up going down. You don't have little tiny governments of their own doing their own thing in your company that you have to oversee and check in with. Um, but that being said, there is less autonomy within the people below, and that comes with its own difficulties as well. Now, in discussing the history of the Royal Deadfire Company, we've already talked about the difficulties back home of the Rauatai trying to be able to feed their own people, and they're having to expand into the world outside their homelands to do so. As a result, trade has been a very important part of the Rauatai identity, um, going out and expanding into new areas of the world and using that to grow food and feed the people back home, but also establishing trade in other areas of the world where people already live. But that's not the only thing that the Rauatai are up to, because it's not like their homeland is devoid of resources entirely. In fact, if you get into the lore of Rauatai, you find out that the soil of Rauatai, it, may, it might not have fertility to it, but there are rich deposits of iron, sulfur, and saltpeter there. Basically, everything that you would need to make warfare armaments, you know, armor and weapons and this stuff, they have it. And so, from a logical perspective, if you are a nation in an area and the resources you have are good for making things like weapons and armor and building up a strong army, then you do that. And you use that to your benefit. Now, how you use the army, now that's that's the question of morality that we could bring into the equation. But having a strong military, there's nothing wrong with that in general. Uh, it allows you to defend the area that you're in. It allows you to, if you wanted to, promote peace with it. But it also could allow you to conquer other lands and take what you need to make sure your people are well-fed and <laughs> alive, basically. And this is kind of what's been motivating the Rauatian government back home, of creating a strong naval army because they're exploring off of their homelands to other areas out in the world. And so as a result, the Rauatians naval power 
is second to none. There is no other army that can match the Rawatayan army. And we talked a little about that in the history of the Deadfire Archipelago a couple episodes ago, about how despite the best efforts of the local tribes, there's just nothing they could do to stand against the power of the Rawatayan army because they have cannons and warships and armor and weapons that could just, that and tactics. You know, there's nothing that people can do. Their naval power has grown to such a point that the Rawatayan sailors are known for being hardened people and experienced naval officers. And the fact that they are so proficient is only marked by the fact that they can even win battles sometimes by sheer intimidation alone. They don't even have to engage in battle. They can just show off their muscles and people will be like, all right, you win. I will not get into this fight. And so this is something that they know how to do. These are the kind of people that are entering into the Deadfire Capelago when you, your player, is entering into the game for the second Pillars game. They've already kind of established a foothold there, and there's a history of how they got there. And these are the type of people that we're interacting with. And the people of the Royal Deadfire Company are a proud people. You need to understand that for like a long period of history, centuries even, there have been these three main superpowers in the world. The Adiran Empire, the Empire of Granvalia, and the Rawatayan Empire. Those have been the three main superpowers that knew about each other for a long time in this world. And a while ago... Grand Valia's civilization started collapsing, and that's why you even have the Principe Saint Petrena, the pirate confederacy, in the Deadfire Capelago in the first place. It's large, wealthy families fleeing that area of the world, moving into the Deadfire, hoping to get a new place. And the Adiran Empire, they set up colonies that you see within the first Pillars of Eternity game, but the Adiran Empire itself, their civilization is starting to collapse. They weren't able to maintain control over the colonies, and people were leaving Adir to go to the new colonies that you see in the first Pillars of Eternity game. And as a result, that empire is now crumbling. But Rawatai is still strong. It's still holding it all together. But they are entering into that time of, we can't feed our own people. We can't sustain this living. We need more. And so there's a nationalistic pride that exists within the people of the Royal Deadfire Company, as well as the people back home. And... It's with this that the Royal Deadfire Company enters in to this new region of the world, hoping to set up colonies, hoping to set up shop and be able to mine resources to feed their people. And I think that's also in part why that they have a good military structure to try to maintain loyalty as much as possible. Because the events from the first Pillars of Eternity game can show you that very easily a colony from your homeland can just splinter off and call themselves independent, and then you are left with nothing as an empire. And so I think they want to learn lessons from that those events with the Adir Empire from the first Pillars of Eternity game. Well, I guess before the first Pillars of Eternity game, because it's a historical piece of lore. But that's something they're trying to learn from. As well, the Royal Deadfire Company bring a lot of skill sets to the Deadfire itself that are useful in the mission that they're trying to campaign in. Being a prominent naval force in an area made of hardy people also trying to invade and conquer an area comprised mainly of Amauans, there's a lot of personal investment that this company is putting into the area, but also there's a lot of skill sets they have that make them good at this. One, they're great on the water. They are proficient in battling on the water. They know how to set up shop on small islands. Like They know what they're doing when it comes to that kind of stuff. As well, the fact that they are also Amalans might lend to them being able to interact with the local tribes a little bit better. Uh, there, you could make an argument that it would be worse, 
because they might be viewed as outsiders of the same race and that makes them worse off. Who knows? I'm not going to get into that. But like, there's a lot going on that the Royal Deadfire is, company is bringing to the table in terms of a skill set, one of which being weather engineering, which is a, a subcategory that we can read within the book here. Being from an area of the world that is plagued by harsh storms and weather, they have actually become quite proficient in being able to read the weather first off, but also have been developing techniques on how to control it. We've already talked about in other episodes that there are ways of controlling the forces of nature in the world, such as normal in fantasy worlds with lots of magic. There are things like the Water Shapers Guild of the Huwana peoples that can form and shape water, even to the point where you, they could cause like small tidal waves You know, they could use to knock over boats of enemies and stuff like that. And the Rautine people have been looking at how to control the weather of these storms for positive impact. One such way of predicting the weather is obviously a way to stave off casualties and help people to stop from starvation. But there's an even more specific way that Rauatai is hoping to utilize the storms that exist within the Deadfire Archipelago. You see, the Deadfire Archipelago is dangerous for a number of reasons. One, it's uncharted territory, so you don't know what's out there and you can get yourself stranded or killed. Two, there are a lot of sea monsters and deadly creatures and deadly plant life that just want to kill you everywhere that you go. And lastly, there is the Huana peoples themselves, not all of which are hostile and violent, but some of which very much are. And so it's a deadly place to be, the Deadfire Archipelago, if it's not a place you've been in already for hundreds of years. But on top of all of that, there's also the storms. The storms in Deadfire Archipelago are absolutely bonkers. And in fact, aside from the storms that you're going to see out just in the sea, floating from island to island, those are pretty intense storms, according to the lore. There's one giant storm called Andra's Mortar that is in this one spot in the sea. It is absolutely massive. It would take weeks, if not months, to sail through the entire vastness of it, even if it was calm. It's such a huge part of the sea, and it's such a massive storm that no one has been able to sail through and survive. That's how intense this storm is. The thought of the Rautaians, though, is that if they could harness the power of these storms to move the moisture away from the dead fire towards Rawatai, they would be able to actually grow food in a safer manner. And it might even be able they might even be able to push some of the more deadly storms further away towards the Deadfire Archipelago from their homeland, so that they're not getting plagued by storms that will kill them, but they're getting the moisture from them that will allow them to grow food. That is one of the end goals of the Royal Deadfire Company. It's thought that the storms in the Deadfire are connected to the Luminous Audra deposits that exist in the Deadfire. Luminous Audra is a unique version of an already unique resource to this fantasy world. Audra is basically a gemstone, kind of looks like jade crystal, that conducts soul energy. So you have a soul, I have a soul, it can pass through this Audra stone kind of like electricity through copper wire. That's just how it works. And this Luminous Audra that exists in the Deadfire Archipelago is even more potent and more powerful than regular Audra. And the thought is that there is such intense and unique storms in the Deadfire Archipelago, and there's this really powerful, unique resource of Luminous Audra, they must be connected in some way, shape, or form. And the Huana peoples have been focusing on protecting the Luminous Audra from outsiders. The Rauataians, being familiar with storms, they feel very competent, and they feel very at home in storms. And they probably have a sense of which we know what we're dealing with when it comes to storms, nobody else. When it comes to stormfront and when it comes to weather, we are the competent ones. We know what's going on, and we should be in charge of that kind of stuff. And so they have a point of pride. They have a, they have a point of, 
I guess you could say, self-appointed leadership when it comes to taking control of the weather in the Deadfire Archipelago. And therefore, they need to also control the Luminous Adra. They don't want to mine it like the Valians do, and they don't want to just leave it alone and protect it like the Hawana do. They want to leave the Luminous Adra where it is, but somehow harness its power and learn what's going on so they can send these storms back home just close enough that they can use the moisture to grow their own food in their homeland. I seek a great treasure, you see. Not gold or silver, but the Tanvi Oratoa, the sacred book of our people, my friend. And it is there, somewhere in there at least, beneath the keep. So controlling the weather and understanding those weather phenomenon is one skill that the Royal Dead Fire Company brings to the table, as well as just naval navigation and expertise. But in the vein of that way of thinking as well, they also offer the service of ship escorting. Now here's what you need to consider. The Valian Trading Company, they've come into the Deadfire Archipelago with the sole means of of taking as much as they can from there and getting as rich as possible. That's the whole point of the Valian Trading Company. So while they're taking big risks and trying to get big gains out of it, they're also a little more short-term sighted. They're saying, what wealth can we extract from the Deadfire in order to gain as much money as possible, become very powerful very quickly, and then have kind of a stronghold on the world itself? Whereas the Royal Deadfire Company, they have a lot more of a long-term goal set here, which means they need to set down roots. They need to think of patterns and way of living that are going to go on long-term. And since they don't really have set down places in which to build a colony or start to set up entire sets of villages and live on their own, and the fact that they're trying to ship stuff back to their empire means that they need to think of ways that they can stay alive while they're out here and to earn resources and money and be able to thrive and survive out in the area. Now, despite the fact that the Hazanuis, the people who are in charge of the Royal Deadfire Company, don't like it, they do have to rely on goods and services coming out of their homeland of Rawatai because they simply just don't have uh, the foothold in the Deadfire to sustain themselves as it is. So they need the supplies and rations sent from their homeland in order to do so. Problem is, is that the waters of the Deadfire Archipelago are absolutely filled with sea monsters and pirates and anything else that wants to take the, the ships down and or take all the stuff away from them. As a result, the Royal Deadfire Company have decided to put an abundance of ships out into the waters, and so there's a lot of Royal Deadfire Company presence in the area. And they, of course, have gotten really good at establishing safer and more efficient paths from island to island and location to location with the escorting of their ships from place to place. But it doesn't just stop there, because if you have all these extra ships lying around, you have a surplus of ships in your naval force, you can also send out those ships to escort the ships of other groups of people. So people who are even with the Valian Trading Company, or other Huwana groups, or just you know people who are out and about, whoever knows who's out in the Deadfire Archipelago, they can use their superior naval power and dominance and presence to escort these ships safely to where they're going. And as a result, they maybe get a little bit of cut from whatever they're, they're shipping, you know? If uh, there is a large supply of food that is heading to the city of Nekataka, the Royal Deadfire Company might help escort that massive supply ship out to the city of Nekataka, and as a result, they get a portion of that food. That's might, that might be a way that the Royal Deadfire Company is doing it. It doesn't specifically lay out how they're doing it, but that's how it, how it alludes to and so ship escorting is something that they're doing in this area as well, which I think is an investment to the people of the Deadfire, and I think will help them actually get a better foothold. 
in the long run, which is something that they are considering. How do we operate long term here? Not just for ourselves, but to get along with the people that are inevitably going to stay here as long as we are. So with all of these things in mind, it's no surprise that, above all, the Royal Deadfire Company value discipline, toil, and relentlessness above anything else. These are, at least according to the lore, the three virtues that Royal Deadfire Company people value. Uh, the Discipline, toil, and relentlessness. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, a, they're in a military structure, so discipline is quite important. You have to be able to you know, steal yourself in order to do the thing that your superior officer tells you to do and trust that it is for a greater purpose. Uh, you have to have the discipline to do that. You also have to be able to live within a military structure your entire life if you're out there in the Dead Fire Capelago from birth to death. As well, the campaign that they are trying to go there with, it's not, an, it's not a small task, and it's not a short-term prospect. It is something that is going to require a lot of work and a lot of exacting work, and you're going to have to have the discipline and the fortitude to be able to handle it. Toil, I think, has to do with their homeland nationalistic pride because they come from a homeland that is bombarded by storms, and it is hard to live there. And that's almost a kind of thing that people there like. It's not that they like living in a hard land, but it's something that they identify with. If they lost their storms and their hardy way of living, there would be a huge shift in cultural identity for the Rawatine people because we are hardy folk is something that it would probably say to each other. And so suffering through things, toiling through things, is a virtue of theirs because that's just part of life and it shows that you're strong. At least that's how I'm reading into it. And lastly, relentlessness. I think this just partly ties in the first two together of A, the nationalistic pride of being hardy people, but also B, being disciplined and having to have that fortitude to continue on. Relentlessness just seems kind of like the mixture of those two. Because in order for you to be able to succeed in the Dead Fire Capelago and feed the people back home, you need to do what needs to be done. It's going to be hard work and you have to be disciplined to do it. You're going to be relentless in how you do it. And so I can understand why that would be the virtue. To counter that, the vices that they watch out for are indolence, opportunism, and wild ambition. And if you're like me, I had to look up what indolence meant. It essentially means laziness. It's defined as avoidance of activity or exertion, <laughs> which I'm feeling a little called out on that, personally speaking. These make sense when you take into account what it is that the Royal Deadfire Company is trying to do in this area of the world that it would be against indolence, opportunism, and wild ambition. So these are vices, according to the book here and this guidebook that I'm reading from. These are the things that the individuals of the Royal Deadfire Company, they watch out for in other people. Like If they see you acting in these ways, you're not a good member of the Royal Deadfire Company. You're potentially a threat to the long-term campaign that they're doing here. And it makes sense. Indolence meaning laziness, you know, not wanting to exert yourself or join an activity. Like, you're here on a mission. You know, you're not off on vacation. You're not at home just chilling on a weekend off kind of thing. You know, you're out here in the middle of a lawless frontier with sea monsters and pirates and violent people and poisonous plants and deadly waters. Like you're out here in the middle of nowhere, brother to brother, brother to sister, citizen with citizen and all that, or employee to employee, I suppose. Who knows? But you're here on a mission. You have things to accomplish. And so you need to rise to the occasion. You need to be ready and willing and excited to go for stuff. Opportunism. 
doesn't necessarily sound like a bad thing to some people. In fact, opportunist, opportunism could could be good, I think, in certain circumstances. But I understand the idea of the people being opportunistic is not helpful to what they're trying to do here. Because remember, the Deadfire Company, the Royal Deadfire Company, are here with a purpose and with a meaning. And in order to accomplish that, you need to stay within the purview, within the parameters, within your scope of practice. You have a certain set of things that you're trying to accomplish. While it might be good to try and go do something over on this island that might benefit you and your people, is it related to what you're trying to accomplish here and now with this long-term mission? If not, you're being opportunistic and not in a positive way. Lastly, wild ambition. And I think this ties in with opportunism as well, because it's especially when you consider the military structure of the Royal Deadfire Company. And again, military structure is basically every person in the military hierarchy has a role to play. And if any one of those people go rogue and just try to focus on themselves and what they want or what they think is the most important, even if it's for other people, it goes against what the entirety of the system is moving towards. That is everything I have on the Royal Deadfire Company, at least from the guidebook that I'm reading from. Thanks everyone for joining me on this episode today. Before we close off, we'll ask ourselves the normal question of what does this have to do with Avowed? Is an oath worth the weight of a crown? Like in previous episodes, there's not a lot we can say for sure that this is going to have to do with Avowed. It depends on when Avowed is taking place, obviously, within the history of this world. If it's before or after, or even during, the events of the Pillars of Eternity games will determine whether or not we can even interact with the Royal Deadfire Company. The Royal Deadfire Company, originating from Rawatai, which is one of the ancient empires of this world, there is a chance that we could run into them, whether it is prequel or sequel or during the Pillars of Eternity games. If it's a prequel, we might not run into the Royal Deadfire Company, obviously, but we might run into um, the naval forces or some of the naval captains that created the Rawatai Deadfire Company, so we could run into people that are kind of like a progenitor for all that. There's a chance that we could run into them, depending on where in the world Avowed has taken place in. But the Rawataian naval force has obviously expanded into more areas than just the Deadfire Archipelago. They've been to all corners that they can possibly get to. They have explored the world as much as they can, and so there's a decent chance that if Avowed is taking place when Rawatai is in existence, that we'll run into Rawatai people at some point, and therefore we may or may not run into the Royal Deadfire Company or an early form of it. And if the reveal trailer for Avowed is any indication of things that we might see, and if the reveal trailer is any indication of what Avowed might be like, there's a decent chance we might be playing in a time period that is consistent with us seeing the Rawataians. Now, obviously, this isn't the Royal Deadfire Company. I'm mostly talking about Rawataians here, but wherever we find Rawataians, there's a chance we might see the Royal Deadfire Company. Uh, even if we do see Royal Deadfire Company presence in Avowed, I don't suspect that it's going to play a large part of Avowed's narrative, simply because the Royal Deadfire Company is just that. It's the Royal Deadfire Company. So unless Avowed is taking place in the Deadfire Archipelago, which I highly doubt it is, I don't expect there being a major presence in the narrative or the setting for Avowed, but you never know. We might be able to have a history with it. There might be side quests or things like that that give little Easter eggs to those of us who have played the Pillars of Eternity games. So there might be something like that, but I'm not I'm not expecting anything impactful regards to the Royal Deadfire Company in Avowed. Thanks everyone for joining me on today's episode. I really loved getting into the Deadfire Factions. This has been fun. There's still more to talk about, obviously, but we're going to stop this episode here. 
We've been talking about the Royal Dead Fire Company today, a large contingent of militaristic and mercantile people from the Rawatayan Empire who are trying to find ways to sustain the population back on their homeland who are suffering from really difficult storms and hardy living. If you liked today's episode, or, or you didn't like today's episode and you want to tell me about it, you can email me, worldofaora at gmail.com. If you're interested in following the show and anything that's going on, you can follow me on Twitter, at worldofaora. I love having conversations about this game and about fantasy games or games in general or just to chat about stuff. And so if you want to just strike up a conversation, go ahead and do so. There's a number of you I still have ongoing conversations with for months, if not years now, actually. Uh, again, thanks everyone who's been listening to this show long term. It's very happy for me to put a episode 5-0 on the, uh, the Anchor.fm channel, which I should probably do an advertisement at some point. This, this entire podcast was started with the idea that I would use it as a platform to learn podcasting, and I never anticipated the positive response that got back from it, which is why it's been continuing on for so long, and I'm very happy about that. I'm glad this is adding value, even in small ways, to people's lives in some way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm not, I'm not repairing families or clothing the poor or anything like that, but um, you know, for those of you who play games and you enjoy stories and lore, I mean, it's adding something to your day, so I'm happy for that. Maybe I'll start a charity campaign that some people can join in on for things like that, the more important issues around us. Anyways, I'm getting way off topic. Sorry about that. Thanks all for listening. I've been your host, Eric, a.k.a. Gingerino, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>